OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Welcome to Impact Investing brought to you by supportersfund.com. For the student visa capital of the world, Toronto, Canada, I'm your host, Jeffrey J.P. Podman, and let's please welcome, from the longest underground shopping complex in the world, with 1,200 stores and 30 kilometers in length in Toronto, Canada, Adita Agarwal, partner of BDC Industrial Innovations Fund. Welcome, Adita. How are you today? And thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Jeffrey. Uh, glad to be here. Uh, doing well. You know, we're hitting this bout of late summer weather in Toronto. Um, so couldn't be excited before we get into the cold fall and, and winter here. So, so, so glad to be here. I love it. I, and I do see that things are going to change this weekend. I think it's going to start raining and temperatures are going to drop in half. So I think we're at that exciting moment where it's got to get outside in the next two days before the sun disappears and hopefully uh, it comes back, but it will, will, uh, we'll only pray for that. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping I get to get at least one more round of golf over the long weekend, the Thanksgiving weekend before, before, you know, I, I put my clubs away. I love it. I love it. Well, I'm pretty excited either to, to have you join us today. And the reason of course, is that you're part of one big conglomerate of investors in Canada. And, and you know, we don't always get the opportunity to really understand how this behemoth of an investor comes into it. And I say behemoth because in Canada, we tend to have a lot of uh, areas that do investment, but you don't always have one big player that just really does a great job on investing in a lot of the great innovation that's coming out of Canada. And you see this across the globe and everybody's trying to kind of match up to what Canada's built, especially in this early stage and mid-tier ecosystem. So it's very exciting to have you to be able to kind of chat through some of this and, and get some learnings from you. But on the other side, I think uh, the other side that excites me is that you're also an engineer by trade. So uh, I don't always get the opportunity to uh, talk with a fellow uh, yeah. nerd, <laughs> I guess, or, or software hack, I guess, or however we want to call it. But I'm very excited about that side as well. So, But to jump in and get the show started, the way we like to start things off is we want to learn a bit more about you. So if you could share a bit about your background all the way from uh, your schooling days through Dalhousie, um, all the way through to everything you've done today. And then one thing about you that nobody would know. All right, good. So maybe I'll start with the, the first part of the question, you know, my background. Um, as you said, I'm a technologist at, at heart and by trade. Uh, you know, I, I was never in the financial world. And if you would have asked me 20 years ago, 25 years ago, what I would have been doing uh, in, in my, where I am today, uh, probably the answer would have been very different to where I am. So, you know, I'm, I'm a computer software engineer, uh, spent four years in India, Bangalore, which was at the time the, um, you could call it the Silicon Valley of India, probably still is. Uh, and there was a big push uh, right around when I joined uh, engineering school, there was ho this whole conversation around Y2K. So the, the, the switch of the millennium, 1999 to 2000, everybody was talking about Y2K. So tons and tons of money was poured into IT company and services company in India to just solve that problem, which kind of created a buzz around, you know, everybody wanted to be a software engineer, computer engineering growing up um, in, in, in that, that period, which led me to join engineering school. You know, I started as a chemical engineer and eventually sw switched to software engineering in my 
fourth term, which was interesting, right? So I did, you know, the initial 101 on fluid dynamics and then so on um, before I started programming with, with C, C++ uh, back in the day. So, you know, uh, as soon as you graduate, there's always an option of working for one of the large service IT services company in India, companies in India. I had some of those opportunities as well. But I said, why not go abroad and, and you know explore a little bit more in terms of deeper technical studies and topics? Ended up in Halifax, uh, Canada, East Coast. So you mentioned you know the student visa population of the world, Toronto, but Canada is much broader than that. Uh, so you know Toronto is not the it, it is the core, yes, uh, but there are a lot of other good schools on the fringes as well. Um, so Halifax was very interesting. You know that city has evolved quite a lot since when I came in 2003. I went to the computer science uh, school for my master's in computer science, and I picked the stream machine learning back in 2004. Uh, you know, so which is quite, you know, the joke today that I make is, you know, back then the only thing you could do after a master's in machine learning was either do a PhD or go into research or work for a call center, right? <laughs> uh, it, was, it, it wasn't something that is as, um, you know, novel and I don't know, sexy as today. Everybody wants to be doing some sort of AI machine learning. Anyway, so I spent a couple of years at Dell, did my research in that. Uh, the problem that we took on was a classification problem in, in, in uh, biology, uh, which is related to classification of protein sequences. So it was quite relevant from a research academia point of view. Um, and then, as you know, that didn't that doesn't really pay the bill. So after I graduated, I was like, okay, what's next? Um, so I had this cool opportunity in Halifax because I was like a programmer at heart, wanted to do a lot of programming still. So I joined this startup that was acquired by AOL uh, in the voice over IP domain. Uh, you know, think of 2004, five, Skype was the rage. Everybody was, you know, voice over IP, kind of replacing phone lines and what we could do with, with uh, IP-based um, phone conversations and systems. So it was a very cool opportunity. We were with the company at the height when the platform that we worked on had the biggest number of subscribers in the world from a, from a chat perspective, 40 million users, right? So um, those numbers seem small today after the, the, the Googles and the Facebooks, Metas and Instagrams of the, the, the world, WhatsApp as well. Uh, but at the time they were one of the largest platforms of users. So, so that was interesting. And then for personal reasons, I moved on the East Coast, New Brunswick, you know. So if Halifax was small for somebody coming from Delhi slash Bangalore in India, think about Fredericton. So, so a city with 50,000 people, the biggest shock was, okay, where are the people? Um, when, when, when I landed in New Brunswick, uh, Fredericton, on a Sunday, probably I could count 20 people on the street. And I was like, okay, this is a Sunday. Okay, okay we'll see more people on come Monday. Okay, so Monday comes rolls around and there's probably 50 people on the street. Uh, so it was a bit of a shock, but I cannot complain because I spent 10 years in, in Fredericton, uh, spent uh, five of those years with, again, programming deep R&D with a company called Keras, which was eventually acquired by Teledyne Systems. So we were one of the unique uh, in, in terms of building ocean mapping. So if you're on a boat, yacht, or anywhere else uh, operating a port, the software that you're using for managing the waterways, navigation, and so on, uh, was probably built by that company. So it was it was very cool. Uh, and it was the same time when Google Earth was taking off on on, on kind of the land ecosystem and, and we were on, on the ocean side uh, with 
Esri as, as our biggest competitor. Um, if you were in that domain, you, you would have heard that name quite often. Um, and, and then, you know, people, uh, a headhunter approached me. Uh, I landed at Siemens, was one of the first few hires at the new R&D center that they were setting up. Joined them again as a software engineer. And, you know, it, it, it is interesting that I spent that time in New Brunswick and the opportunity to work with this payment of uh, a Fortune 50 company, Siemens, setting up R&D center. I, I traveled so much with Siemens out of New Brunswick that gave me a perspective that I may not have achieved if I would have landed in Toronto and took up a job, maybe, you know, with a traditional company and, and I would have gotten lost in, you know, small fish, big pond, big fish, small pond kind of an analogy. Um, so with Siemens, I spent uh, you know eight years, various different roles, did a couple of multiple jumps on, on, on promotions, traveled the globe, spent time in Europe, US, worked with some of the largest investor-owned utilities uh, in the ecosystem, solving problems that we're talking about today around demand response, renewables, bringing those renewables on the grid, balancing the grid on the distribution side uh, in terms of, okay, so is the grid even designed to handle that kind of variability, uh, for example? How can we reduce peak demand? And, and, and all of those were business-related questions then, which have now become not just business-related, uh, related, but also have sustainability angles to them, which impact some of the KPIs that people want to track directly. So it was a very interesting experience, right? And then just before COVID in 2020, uh, like I said, I wasn't looking for something um, in the financial world, but one thing led to the other. I ended up talking to my managing partner um, through a common contact. One conversation led to other, and I made a switch into the investing world with Industrial Innovation Venture Fund. Um, the key there was uh, I spent about four years at Siemens, and three of those were reading P&Ls, in you know industrial ecosystems, power utilities, oil and gas, advanced manufacturing. So I had that operational experience, keeping the fact that I'm, I was still a technologist at heart, uh, you know, making sense of not just code but also numbers was was a plus. And with this fund, the focus was industrial innovation, so it was just you know um, made sense uh, at, at the time. So so here I am. Um, uh, a technologist at heart, engineer, and an investor today. I love it. That's a great, uh, great background, and so many great pieces of being across Canada and then obviously traveling globally. And of course, we'll we'll kind of dig into some of this and, and peel back the layers of it. But before we do, one thing about you that nobody would know. Well, a few people would know that are close to me, but um, it is that I was I I was a very avid cricketer. Um, I couldn't break it into professional sport, but instead I ended up being on the board of Cricket Canada, which is the national sports governing body for a few years. Um, so that, that was that was interesting. So I don't hear that a lot, but a few people know about them, yes. Yeah. Oh, that's very cool. Very exciting. All right. So now we're going to kind of peel back and talk a little bit about all these great things and kind of what built the career and what got you today where you are. And and maybe one of the things that I want to jump into is that when you were working through this Y2K piece, there was a lot of urgency that was put on this. And I think we all kind of got to the state where uh, at the time I had just recently started in IT at Loblaws. And I remember that it was all hands on deck, not two years in advance. It was like 
this is happening in eight months and what do we do and what's going to happen and how does this thing work? And so it's quite fascinating, the changes that were going to occur because of this. And there was some planning, of course, in the software side, but maybe you can share a little bit about what that urgency and governance side of it went through when you guys were building out this product, because I think today there's a lot more emphasis being put on securities, governance, and how you manage um, these types of big overhauls that are going to happen inside of systems. Is there something there that you can share that will give people an idea, especially in the early stage side, that this is yeah. something that will continue to happen across networks um, all over the world? Yeah, no, that, that's interesting, but I, I would put a, a qualifier there as that led me to do computer sciences. I wasn't involved with one of the product builds, but I was surrounded with people who were directly involved as I was doing my undergrad at the time. Uh, and some of their experience were, were around, it was all hands on deck, right? You know, five months, it, the, the clock is ticking. There's only five months left. We need to fix all of these systems uh, in, in terms of um, making sure that this issue is resolved. Um, so I, I don't know the details on, on, on governance, but what the learnings that came out of it is what I got um, you know, acquainted with and we were taught about it uh, in school, which plays into today's systems as well, is some of the aspects of design should not be an afterthought. It should always be done as, as a precursor. For example, cybersecurity. I, I would still argue that in, in most jurisdictions and e ecosystems, it still is an afterthought. Up until a couple of years ago, you didn't even have a position like a CISO, the Chief Information Security Officer. It did not even exist. And if it did exist, that person would report it to CIO, right? But security is not just a function of IT. You know, a marketing team can go build a marketing database that could get hacked and leak sensitive customer information. But if the CISO is reporting to the CIO, they would not have visibility into something like that. So the industry is evolving. You know, today, CISOs usually go report directly to CEO so that they have a full visibility. That's one aspect, right? So, so governance and you know, design thinking should always be at the forefront of when you're building software systems, specifically large enterprise-wide systems. As a startup, sometimes we lose focus of, of those aspects, uh, but I think that's where you know, experience and people are, are being cognizant of the fact that you cannot just build for scale and business continuity. You need to be able to build for robustness as well as other aspects of design. Totally agree with that. And, and I think to your point where they had to shift around. Hopefully I answered that question and touched on some of the key points that we were looking for. For sure, exactly. Uh, I think there's also an interesting piece there that you talk about, which is the shifting from putting the CISO in place for one, and then who they report to. And today when we've invested in a few different companies that fit in the uh, quantum uh, security space and other areas, it, it does seem to be an area that is really highly influenced today, which is this banner of security and how you manage that across borders. Correct. So I think what's, what's coming out of this in the future, and of course, as software starts to build out, and from your engineering side of, uh, of things, are you seeing a lot more companies really starting to put more emphasis on the security side and protecting their user data? Or are you finding that more companies are trying to segment this piece out and not even touch it? So they're allowing for other entities to own the, the cost, their customer data because of the fear of a hack or this information being breached. Yeah, I think that's a very good, good point. Um, the way I would qualify the industry as evolved is the 
the adoption of cloud computing, right? Um, back in the day, you would basically own the full stack as a data center. You would have racks of servers after servers that were within a physical location that you operated. But cloud computing, I think a lot of people don't get understand, especially in the domains that we invest in in the industrial sector, just offers some of these features out of the box. So if you're a startup building on top of some of these infrastructure providers uh, and using some of their services, you're covered, right? Um, and, and I think that's where things things are getting better. So people are still using you know, bespoke systems and some servers that are located locally or using access-based databases running on PCs and so on. But if you're, you're as an organization, you decide to basically use the benefits of cloud compute infrastructure, uh, you, you address some of those concerns right off the bat. And, and, and as you are, if you're part of a critical infrastructure industry, you know, SOC 2 compliance, ISO 27001 are key uh, certifications that you ought to have, even if you're a seed or a Series A company, right? You, you, you can't delay those for later stages. Agreed. So now you, you've taken this experience, you're, you've now moved in and you're, you've shifted over to running and operating inside of Siemens. And as you mentioned, you had the opportunity to uh, travel and, and move around and, and learn a lot and get into a lot of different spaces. Is there, in this, was it acting more as a consultancy? So do you find that you were able to work on many different projects on all different sides of that? And, and what was the type of experience you gained from that? It's very interesting. Um, you know, it, it, it wasn't just one um, kind of role. It had various different aspects to it. You know, I was writing code for the longest time, I think up until even 2017, where I had PL responsibilities. I would still roll up my sleeves, work with my teams to, to debug and, and understand what they were designing, architecting, and, and building. Um, so there was all, a, a lot of deep software engineering involved. But at the same point in time, um, there was a lot of customer facing. We were building our products and services on top of a platform. So I was enabling, you know, as, as one of the technical architects with technical sales on the product side. And then eventually when I had PL responsibility, working with C-suites at these utilities, you know, um, getting them to understand the, the, the broader vision of what products and softwares will, will help achieve in kind of bridging the operational technology gaps that some of these utilities would have into the future uh, when you know you need to make critical decisions at a much faster pace. So, so there was a lot of lot of that, and I think that's where you 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 could argue that I, I gained the most ex well-rounded 360 experience of product, marketing, sales, uh, financials, as well as architecture. That's awesome. So. In this experience that you're gaining and you're moving through, you start to shift out of code and focus more on the PL side, which is giving you more expo exposure to the financial aspects of the business. Now, were you dom were you operating inside of each of these projects um, on the financial side? So as that financial officer for each one of these, so with that gained experience, did you find that this is what's really helped you today working with um early mid-tier companies on helping them better understand their P&Ls, their budgets, their financial forecasting, where a lot of that information was built during that time? No, that, that, that's exactly it, it, it is, right? So, so, so that's a key piece as an investor when you come. You could bring multiple hats. Um, it can wear multiple hats and bring different experiences to the table. That's where I think I add a lot of value where there, there are a lot of gotchas in the industrial domains that we support and invest in companies. It's not a typical B2B enterprise SaaS 
you know, where you track against, you know, typical SaaS KPIs, LTVs, CACs, and ARR, um, even though we still use those terms in, in the companies that we invest in. Because, for example, a sales cycle for, for a typical SaaS company to go from, you know, 100 subscribers to 10,000 subscribers may only take um, eight months, 12 months if they are hitting that hockey stick curve, as we call investors call it. But that's never going to happen in an industrial digital software company. Um, because their sales cycles on a good day are, could be four to six months, uh, and an average is eight to 12 months, right? And if you're selling in some a sector like automotive, forget it, like 12 to 18 months is to close those enterprise level accounts. So I think that's where I bring a lot of experience. Having been through that with my experience at Siemens, is a, it's a bit of a game of being patient. Uh, along with being able to deliver value as you continue on, on that journey towards a big scale up with these large enterprise customers. And and from working with these companies and, and certainly using Acerta or in the automotive space and, and working with them and learning uh, how their sales forecasting and how their sales cycles work. And as you mentioned, it's 12 to 18 months, which be, you're implementing these large, large systems. They're going to take a lot of hands-on to kind of put these in, but they're seeing large benefits from either bringing the teams together from a communication standpoint or cost savings? And what did you find were these larger, longer set out sales cycles? What were the maybe one, three points of what was really the value add that your customer felt that they needed to start testing this? Because when you get on something that takes 18 months to implement, you kind of lose wind to why am I doing this? Is there really enough upside value? We have our own systems. Is there some learnings that you gained from that to say, you know, it, a lot of businesses will push back, but here's some learnings on how to get them more convinced because 18 month sales cycle isn't exactly slow or fast. And it doesn't exactly bring you a lot of investors that are intrigued by this long duration of sales cycle. Yeah, I think that there the are two aspects to that. One is the implementations necessarily may not take 18 months. It's just convincing the right stakeholders to scale up the technology takes sometimes 18 months. Uh, but the ROI is usually generated in the first three or four months when you do a quick, dirty pilot with these customers, right? Because they always have a, a clear need of what they want to do, but sometimes what is hard is to articulate that need and actually attach an ROI to it. So for, for some of the companies that we invest in, you know, you could argue that they're very good at showcasing that need and proof of value within that first couple of months uh, when they engage with these customers in their conversations. And once you've done that, um, the goal then becomes is, can we get one or two production licenses? Um, and, and that starts the recurring revenue to come in. And you know you need to convince one person, and then that opens up the box where you could scale very quickly, right? So some of our companies, they've gone from one plant, one line, to you know multiple plants geographically distributed in North America, Europe, over the course of 12 to 15 months um, after that full sales cycle. So, so investors, um, some of the invest, the key aspects of us as investors in this domain is to understand that, you know, is there a value prop that the customer sees quickly? And then once you've gotten in, it, it's an account based scale up. It's not, it may not necessarily be chasing every label under the sun, but it could be, you know, you've got two or three really big labels that see the value. So this value principle that you're you're talking about, what are some of those pieces that the customer really is going against? Is it 
building efficiencies? Is it cost reduction? Like what are the ones that they typically say, if I don't have these, I'm not interested? Yeah. Well, the, the easiest one that always is top line gains, right? Like everybody's interested in that. Like if, if you can show a top line direct correlation to top line gains, uh, you're golden. Uh, but in some situations, it, it, it comes through uh, productivity increases and reduction in cost, which impacts your bottom line. Uh, but it, it needs to be a direct impact there as well. Where companies could fall flat is if there is none of those two impacts. Like if you if you see operational efficiency, yes, but you don't know where it makes an impact, whether it's the top line or the bottom line, uh, then that's a challenge. Um, so I think those are the kind of two key considerations when we look at companies is can they either impact the top or the bottom line and how, how fast would that impact be seen? So speed is always going to be an element of this. So when these customers are looking at this and they're, they're large customers, um, Fortune 500 customers, uh, you know, they have sales cycles, they have costs, they have efficiencies they need to build into their models. So when they're looking at this, I'm assuming the companies are putting together fantastic case studies. Yeah. Uh, they're walking through with other customers this information that's going to be readily available to them. They can speak with those customers. Are there ways that you guys also offset some of this by validating it, going through the code? Are you doing things as well to help with this process so that in their case study, it's saying, you know, BDC went through and did a uh, 50 point check on our code. And it shows that this is validated AI is working all this good stuff. Like, are you guys also doing things that build credibility into your customers? So no, we, we're, we're patient, you know, investors, we are active investors, but we won't go deep into that level. Uh, Cause at the end of the day, it's the entrepreneur that's building the company, right? So, so we're happy to uh, support them as investors. We will bring our, our entire network. Like for example, I, I make a lot of introductions um, through, through my network, uh, business network, as well as personal network that I've built over the course of the last few decades, um, expose the right people from that network uh, to the companies. In ca some cases, you know, we expose them to people who are experts in product management or marketing or sales uh, functions, and, and that's how we, we help them. And in some cases, we would have that expertise too, um, but we want to make sure that we provide the best, uh, put the best foot forward for our companies. Um, but we're not a certification body where we would say, okay, we've done this sort of a 50 point inspection and we, we confirm because you know, that's, that's the company. And then they, they have other entities who are experts in, in doing that if that is needed. Fair. Now, when these companies are onboarding their potential clients and their verticals and their focus, is there on your investment side, the companies that you're investing with, are you coaching them as an overall structure on how to focus in on each of these customers in each of the verticals? Like, is there that hands-on experience that says, hey, company A, we're investing in you and, and this vertical is a really good vertical. We see you guys operating in here. We've got some efficiencies. Uh, we've got a couple of our key analysts that work in this space. We're going to help you onboard these customers and we can help you cut back that time so that it speeds things up a little bit quicker. Yeah, yeah, we definitely provide that that service uh, from from a business perspective. Like whether for companies, you know, one of our principles is helping them create, you know, dashboards that will sit on top of their CRM to do get efficiencies on the sales process. Uh, in in one situation, I was working with a company where we looked at uh, their their overall stack and then help them see, okay, how could we, you know, reduce 
some of the costs, so the, the GMs go up, uh, the gross margins go up. Um, so that we do do that uh, on a need by basis because one of the philosophies that we have as an industrial innovation venture fund is um, when we invest, we invest with conviction and we also um, want to be able to help the companies as much as we can by being on the board as an, a director or an observer. So, so we are structured that way uh, as well. So um, we will never go and have a 50 or a 60 portfolio company because we know as partners and principals on the team, you know, you, you get stretched thin. So our investment focus is, you know, I would be maybe on four or maximum six boards so that I could go deep uh, with these companies as they need um, um, assistance or, you know, just brainstorm ideas. But I, I will say this, you know, and this is kind of on a different note, coming from an operator, as an operator uh, from the, the industrial world, you know, being a VC is a bit of a change because you're a little bit more passive than active. You're not driving the bus or rocket ship here in this case, right? You're not the pilot uh, and you're necessarily not even the co-pilot, right? So you're, you're, you're the, the tower, the, the ground crew who's, who's controlling it and, and giving them some instructions. But um, so that, that takes getting used to for sure. There is a bit more of um, guidance versus yes. diving in and helping them rebuild their system. Yes, yes. You mentioned that you get the opportunity to jump on boards, and, and I've seen that you're on a, a few different boards, and, and one of them in particular, which is Acerta, and they just uh, not too long ago raised a, a Series B uh, round of investment. When you guys are working and putting in the capital into the business, and as you mentioned, you're doing different facets along the way to help guide and, and manage through with your portfolio companies. Um, when you choose to go on to a board, um, specifically into a, a software and innovative company that is um, scaling, when you're inside of that, do you find that having that board seat is really allowing not just you, but your entire team um, a better view into being able to help solve other problems that you may not have even imagined were going on inside the business? Yeah, I think there's always um, the, the, that aspect when once you are on the board, you, you see some aspects and it's not just helping that one particular business that you're on the board of. For example, there are learnings that you could bring back to the team uh, that they could apply to other portfolio companies where we have board seats, right? So okay, how did this company in the industrial domain cut short their sales cycles from 12 months to six months what are the key levers that they they kind of turned um can we use them somewhere else so, so that's a very good way of uh, not just adding value on one but also learning and adding value on the others and at the same time like i said you know for, for example with asserta um we, we're co-invested with a thrive platform um so there are aspects of the ecosystem that they have expertise in uh, and then they have an absorber seat so they come in and help with, let's say, the financial aspects of the business sometimes in, in terms of, you know, balance sheets, income statements, and how do we uh, provide some um, optimizations within the, uh, the financial aspects of running the business. So we're always open and we're always adding value and learning. And, and um, you know, it's not about one way, it's, it's two ways. So we learn and implement it somewhere else too. I love that because I find that as you start to grow and scale your business, everybody has points of view. And it's not always easy to take and disseminate across all uh, bodies that are part of this. So how do you really shape that up and utilize your team? And you have a large team. How do you utilize that team and the knowledge that they carry across different boards and different groups to ensure it benefits uh, the company that you're working with at that time? 
And I think that cross communications, but of course, now you're getting into other investment groups that are also part of it, and they have skills that um, you can utilize as well. So there really is a big portion of that, which is helping on the communication side to ensure that these boards are providing enough feedback and direction into the business so that they can make the decisions they need to in order to move and build that business forward. Yeah, exactly. And all of that's going to come at a time and an expense. And because your team is dedicated to do this, I think that's a, a certainly a, a great um, learning for uh, your team, but also for the company you're investing in. Now, when you look at these portfolio businesses and that you're on boards and that you're structuring them, is there anything that you would say to a founder, what's the right time or what has been the right time for those founders to start putting together stronger boards or making the changes that they require? Did you Have you found over the last few years that you've been operating inside of this investment group where you say, this is the perfect time, series A, you've got to have at least five people, pull some domain experts. This is where we got to start scaling your business. Well, that's always the case, right? So how uh, we, we complement um, the organization. At the end of the day, the board is the oversight, right? And the board's fiduciary duty, at first and foremost, is to the corporation. And I think as, as VCs, um, that's how we also look at it. Uh, that, that is the, the first uh, role. And if the time is right and the company is ready to scale and expand the board, we should always do that. Like there have been instances where we've let go of our board seats so that you know the right people can come in at the right time for the company and we've expanded some of the boards where we've added key independents uh, on the board that bring a lot of domain experience uh, industry experience in addition to what we may bring or other investors may bring so so we're always open and uh, we're always uh, mindful of what is uh, the best for the company right um, as, as board operators, that that's our first and foremost way of, of handling those situations. I love it. And because you're coming in at, I would say, more mid to later stage investing in the Series A, B, and C, have you found that when you are coming in at these uh, pinnacle moments of where they're going to start scaling and the capital that you're bringing in, are you finding that the companies are more mature at that stage? Are you finding that there's any anomalies that you're looking for? Or does it all seem relatively close? It fits your thesis. They come in, you make an investment and, and you know move forward. Or do you find that you're looking for these slight anomalies in the process because you've been doing this for so long that you're like, no, make sure the company has this, this, and this, and then you guys will be a great qualifier to invest. No, I think that's a, that, that's a great question and kind of how we qualify investments. Uh, I think that is a function of our domain focus as well. Uh, and not a lot of investors are as domain focused as us. You, you'll find a lot of generalists. Um, and the few things that we pick up as, as domain specific investors, right? Because 60% um, of our portfolio has some sort of a hardware element. This is an example that I'll give you. And one of the key things that we always look at is if it's a novel hardware product or a sensor or, or a device, um, what is the most critical component or what are the first the three most critical components and are they being sole sourced, for example? And if they are being sole sourced, uh, who's the supplier? What is the capability of the supplier? Can the supplier scale and as the company scales, right? Um, and over the years, we've built this experience that, you know, you can't ignore this piece. Uh, you can't just focus on the software side and say, okay, hardware will just work out of the box. Um, what, what happens if that critical supplier runs out of money? What happens if they can't source a key component that is needed to build that component so this company can use? Right? That's a good example of where 
we always go to the depth of both hardware and software and understand not just what the design is, but also understand the supply chains that are required to build those systems um, before we, we invest uh, as an example. And that's a, that's a huge factor. And I guess sometimes you're not always thinking that I'm investing in company A, but I got to make sure company B, C, and D can also support company A if they're scaling with the amount of money that we're throwing in this with the rest of the investors. If those other three businesses can't qualify and scale at the same time, you're going to be in a pickle because you're going to grow faster than your suppliers can maintain uh, the volume to get you the product out to your customers. Exactly, right? So so sometimes that that's, I think that's maybe where the decision comes in is do we bring something like that in-house, you know, raise more capital? And uh, versus, you know, keep keep it outside of uh, the the company. But those decisions you make as the business scales and uh, how things things are, right? And if you found we we um I was in a with a podcast yesterday, and, and one of the individuals that when he was investing, he actually was investing in the companies that were supporting his primary company, and they were doing that because they wanted to make sure that those other companies weren't offsetting and affecting the primary investment. Yeah. So I find that fascinating. And, and these, these gentlemen, they're, um, they're actually building um, an underground tunnel yes. from uh, Helsinki to Tannen. Okay. So it's a 103 kilometers underground tunnel. And they had said, look, we're building this project. We're in year six. We know we've got at least, you know, another six to eight years before it's fully built. It's going to connect to airports and everything else. It's pretty fan, pretty amazing, um, to be to be honest. And once they put this together, they're investing in the companies that are investing in their primary company, which is the one that's putting this entire fifteen billion dollar project together. And they're investing in all of the different startup companies that they see are going to be able to support what they're doing to make sure that those companies are growing and scaling at the same time that they are. Because if they don't, they won't have the support in the next five years once that train is now operational once they finish burrowing those tunnels. That's very interesting, right? So for us, I mean, if that company fits our investment thesis as and is in Canada uh, and they're building something cool, we'll always look at them or maybe some of our sister funds could look at them. Uh, so, so, so yeah, that always is, is, is an opportunity. I love it. Uh, is there any advice that you would give around on the board side, things that you would want to um, help CEOs today think about for the future when they are putting that board together? Is there something around governance or anything that you feel is, again, sometimes it's a miss or it's just overread because they're not paying attention to it? Are there certain facets of how a meeting should be run versus how it shouldn't? Are there things that you've picked up on that you really like and say, I think every single board meeting should do X yeah. or, or whatever those things are? Maybe you could share a little bit about that. Well, that's a great question, right? And 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 as I got more board experience, uh, being uh, for spending time on some of these boards, there's definitely a few things that stand out. So if I were to pick the top two, the first one I would say is board meetings should be efficient and and quick. They should not be a three, four, five hour strategy session. You know, hour and a half to two hours that touch on you know key KPIs of the business. You know, top line, bottom line, revenues, key customers key deliverables, implementations, and then key risks across the next few years, along with uh, a comparison against the three-year operating plan. I think that's what a board meeting should be. Uh, quick, concise, precise, uh, and done. 
Uh, and I think the second part I would say is being a board member, you know, as, a, as an entrepreneur, if you're looking to see who you should bring on the board, I would say don't think of it as, you know, you're bringing somebody who's going to be working with you 24-7. I think the, the board's responsibility should be that they're there to offer solutions to problems that may or may not exist, right? And they can help see problems that you would probably experience in the future. But the sentiment from the board or the member who's coming on board should always be that the entrepreneurs know better than the board members themselves of what they're trying to do and build and solve. Because you know, you, you're investing in the company because you believe in the company, right? So you need to be able to believe in the entrepreneur as well and, and let them know where you could help and, and be better and better focused, right? So that's what you would want in a board member. You don't want somebody coming with a stick and say, okay, I'm, I've got this experience. I know this is the only way to do it. It is my way or highway. You don't want a board member like that. That's just my experience. Wholeheartedly agree with that. I, I support that. And I, I do agree that you don't want it to be weighted one way because somebody dominates the room because of the amount of money they brought in or the experience they think they carry. It, it really comes down to, to your earlier point, which is, you're there for a guidance. You're there for feeding information, helping resolve concerns. But at the end of the day, you're you're supporting the entrepreneur while backing and taking care of all of the investors that line up behind you. Yep, I love it. That's all very uh, very insightful and, and, and great knowledge uh, that you've shared. Um, we're going to kind of shift now into uh, our next module, and but before we do, we're going to ask. I'm going to just jump into one question. And the first question before we get into this um, 60 second rant, what's the toughest lesson you've learned to date as an investor? I think the toughest lesson was initially when I started in this world was um, being able to say no, right? It, sometimes it's hard to say no. You're excited about the technology, but something else is not right. Or you're excited about the business, but something else is not right. So, so coming from an operations world and, and a technologist at heart is it, it, saying no. I think it, it's that's an art um, of, of saying no, because as a technologist, you get excited by every technology company that comes and pitches and, you know, it takes getting used to it. That's a, that's a great answer. It, is there also the ability when hearing no to ask questions to learn what the no is? And do you think that that's valuable for the entrepreneur to do? Yeah, I think that's valuable for the entrepreneur to do for sure. But I think that where sometimes that falls flat is VCs are not open uh, in sharing why they said no. But I think as if you want to help the entrepreneur and get value even from that no, it's always good to get them at least um, not just a board's eye view, but a little bit more details of why you're saying no. That will help them go a long way. Yeah, Agreed. Is there a, do you have a case study that you could share on what it takes to be a founder? Like of all the companies you've seen, maybe you thought one that was great, they got away and they, they took off and did a great job of building their business or, you know, just some of that, what it, the grit or what it may take to be a founder. Any case study that pops into your mind that really emphasizes what it takes instead of the glorified, I build a company, sell it for a billion dollars. Is there, you know, what it takes? Have you seen a lot of that? Uh, well, so I haven't seen a lot of that because I've only spent four years in the domain. So I would have read a few articles and so on. Uh, but there are some companies, you know, that that you could potentially see in our domains that have gone through that cycle. You know, um, there's a company that 
recently got acquired, well, not recently, a few years ago got acquired at the height of COVID by Autodesk. Uh, it's called Upchain. So I would recommend people, you know, reading up on that and the story of the founder there. I know him, him well. Um, he came from, he was actually at Siemens at, at, at a point in the industrial domain, selling software into the industrial ecosystem, decided to build his own company, you know, had the same, um, you know, experiences and challenges scaling that business initially, but, you know, through grit, went through that um, um, ecosystem and built it. And, and you're not talking about a young entrepreneur here, right? You're talking about somebody who's seasoned, who's spent 20 plus years in the ecosystem. So to do that at that point in time in, in, in your life is actually very interesting as well. Agreed. And they're now saying that that's where you get the best entrepreneurs or those seasoned ones where most are coming in and they're between their 40s and 60s because they've got a, you know, they haven't proven why yet, but they're saying that they've just have that domain experience, which just allows them to maybe navigate a little bit easier than someone coming fresh out of school, I guess. Yeah, well, specifically in the industrial ecosystem, right? It is kind of a different beast uh, rather than building a B2B or a B2C software SaaS company. For sure. Yeah. Okay, we're going to go into the 60-second rant. So the way this works is we have 60 seconds. I'll show my hand when there's five seconds left. And the idea behind it is that you got 60 seconds to rant about anything that you think is uh, rantable. And then I will throw something back at you, and then you'll close it off. Okay, are we ranting about stuff in, in the venture capital domain? Are we ranting about personal stuff? I want to be careful here. You can rant about anything you like, anything you like. And we're going to use this as a way to drive um, people to come in to, to take a look at the podcast. So 60 seconds on whatever you think that you think is uh, phenomenal that we want to talk to. Okay. All right, tell me when we All right. Go. All right, so the, the the thing I want to rant a little bit about is my experience that I've gained over the last four years in kind of the Canadian ecosystem and venture capital ecosystem. I think it is very different when it's compared to the south of the border. Uh, so the rant is, I think we as investors in Canada, not just our organization, which we do a great job at, but others, uh, we need to be a little bit more bold, make bolder bets, and be able to support our companies to scale globally. Uh, I think. You hear a lot about Canadian entrepreneurs going south of the border, raising these big, big checks and, and big rounds. And, and they, it's kind of become a, a culture or a way to, to do rounds, um, especially over the last three, four years. Uh, they just you know, see value being added. But I think there's a lot more value to be added with the investors that are in Canada. And I think where that needs to shift is investors need to get a little bit bolder. Uh, and being able to support these companies uh, on their bold visions of making global leaders. I love it. That is a perfect rant. So I'm going to counter by saying, well, Canada is kind of a small country. We're happy being here. We're the tree-hugging capital of the world. You know, we don't really look to get outside of our domain. We're all polite. We don't want to be pushing against the grain. You're saying we need to be bolder. But really, at the end of the day, we have a tough time saying no. And you, you, you shared that, that it was a tough learning for you. So how do we get around the abilities that, you know, we're, we're bringing a lot of smart people into the country. Hopefully we can keep them all. But at the end of the day, we're not very aggressive. We don't have that capitalistic mindset. We're a socialist hugging community. How do we shift that so that we can be to what you just shared, which is more aggressive, pushing the envelope, putting more money out there and risking more all the time? How do we do that? I think I'm going to be a little bit controversial here. Uh, hopefully I, I don't get beaten up by somebody, but 
I think as individuals, Canada is not that. If you think about, there was a stat that we read, it's published by um, University of California, top five countries that contribute to either unicorns or large startups coming out of North America, it's India, Israel, and Canada is in top five. It's just, we moved down south as, as a personal objective to build those companies in the US. So I think as a society, as a, as a community, we are labeled that, but as individuals, we have that mindset of building big, doing big things. Um, so I don't know how to solve that problem today, but I, I, I really don't like that label that, you know, we, we don't like to do big things. We do. We just choose to do it somewhere else. I love it. Well, hopefully the, uh, the American capitalistic market sees that and keeps jumping on the businesses that we're building and take them to the glory days, because at the end of the day, it creates a lot more value, wealth and roles and jobs in Canada. And hopefully we can keep doing that, uh, to your point and we can get rid of the, uh, the tree hugging capacity and start building a bolder uh, community. For sure. I love it. All right. We're going to jump into the next segment, which is rapid fire questions. These are pertaining to the business side. So you pick one or the other as an investor. Okay. Founder or co-founder? Founder. Unicorn or a four-year 10x exit? Four-year 10x. Tech or CPG? Tech. NFT or Web 3.0? Web 3.0 overall. AI or blockchain? Well, AI. First time founder or second, third time founder? First time founder. First money in or Series A? Uh, Series A. Board seat or observer? Board seat. Safe or convertible note? None. Is that an option? It is. It is, of course. And what I, I guess I'll ask, what do you guys prefer? What do you guys typically go in at? Straight up equity. Um, Love it. Lead or follow? Uh, lead. Favorite part of investing? Um, getting to see a lot of cool technologies. Me too. Number of companies invested per year? Uh, anywhere between two to four. Love it. Verticals of focus? Uh, digital industrial software, ag and food and manufacturing. Two qualities for a startup to stand out? Novel product and uh, conviction in the market that they're selling into. I love that conviction. It's a good one. What piece of advice would you give founders nine out of 10 times? Don't give up if you believe in the product on the market. Do you have a philosophy or rules that you stand behind? Uh, philosophy and rules is always be open, uh, consensus, and mindful of that you're supporting people in their dreams. I love it. Who is your hero or mentor and why? Well, that's an interesting question. So I would say I spent a lot of time discussing some of these with, with my father. So he's, he's built businesses, had successes and big failures as well. Um, so there's a lot to learn from him. Oh, that's great. What is your biggest fear or phobia in the business startup ecosystem? That is interesting. Um, hype. Oh, there's a lot of hype. That's good. We could do a whole segment just on hype. Yeah, I agree. Yes. What line do you find you share to investors over and over? I'm sorry, can you please repeat the question? What, what line do you find you share to investors over and over again? It's a great company to invest in. I love it. What? is your favorite investment you've made today? You're gonna pick, make me pick. It's, it, it's a small robotics company out of Hamilton. We came in seed stage called SkyGage Robotics. I think I, I'm aware of this company. I love it. Is there any references of podcasts or other uh, things that you read or go into on a daily basis that others would might wanna follow? No, I read everything and anything under, under the roof, so you know, touch. TechCrunch Plus, a lot of these VC podcasts and so on. So there's nothing that I focus on specifically. Okay. All right. Personal questions. 
Most famous person that pops in your mind? A controversial again could be Elon Musk. First brand that pops in your mind? The SpaceX. Book or movie? A movie. Superman or Batman? Oh, Batman always. Fortune cookie or birthday cake? Birthday cake. Five minutes with Bezos or Oprah? Five minutes with Bezos. Mountain or beach? Oh, beach. Anyway. Bike or run? Run. Big Mac or Chicken McNuggets? Big Mac. Trophy or money? A trophy. Beer or wine? Beer. TED Talk or book reading? TED Talk. Facebook or LinkedIn? LinkedIn. Yeah, I closed my Facebook account a few years ago. Favorite movie and what character would you play? Well, it's an easy one. Judgment Day, Terminator 2. Uh, I will be back. I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. Right. Favorite book? Uh, favorite book is The Alchemist. Favorite sports team? Uh, favorite sports team? Uh, that is interesting. Arsenal, um, English Premier League. Did you say Arsenal? Yes. My God, you're like the first person of all the interviews I've done that's an Arsenal fan. Oh, really? It's incredible. Yes. I, I used to say, do you like Arsenal or Manchester? And everybody would pick Manchester. So I stopped beating myself up that there wasn't any Arsenal fans. So I refused to use that question. And now you're the first one. So this is phenomenal. I'm hitting the red green buttons. Woo! That's awesome. There you go. Yeah. yeah, it's very rare. But if you're in uh, Rwanda... And places like that, there's a ton of Arsenal fans, but I'm not sure where they all are in North America. They seem to be hiding. So it's pretty cool that you're an Arsenal fan. Yeah, we're still a few. Oh, well, I think it's because we're always mid-pack and we can't seem to get anywhere in the top five until this last past season. So maybe this year we'll pull uh, pull through and make it to the top. Exactly. All right, we're almost there. What's the meaning of success to you? Being able to make my own decisions without having you know somebody knocking me down. I love it. And lastly, what is your superpower? My superpower uh, is also my Achilles heel being too analytical. Well, I've never, I've never had anybody be over analytical around it comes to investing or understanding the data side of any business. So I think that's a huge skill set. And because you're an Arsenal, Arsenal fan, it really ties it all together. So Adita, I want to say thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. You're a rock star, and I'm glad that we got the opportunity to dive in and learn more about your background and all the great things that you've been working on and going to be working on. Um, and the way we like to end our show is we want to give you the last word. So anything that you can share to the startup community, to investors, I turn it over to you. Please also share how they can get a hold of you. But again, thank you very much for being on the show and sharing all this great insight. Um, thank you for having me, Jeffrey. Uh, kind of last closing lines, you know, it's always hard and very tough to be an entrepreneur. Um, I've never been in that, in those shoes directly, indirectly, yes, but um, never give up. And I think Canada is a great ecosystem, specifically if you're building software and then the industrial ecosystem with the, the breadbasket of the world. Uh, you know, we, we used to be in the top five in the manufacturing space and still are doing a lot of manufacturing as well. And, you know, just from an ecosystem perspective, now you're able to scale companies out of Canada and, and still function globally. So don't be afraid of uh, setting up and uh, your startup here in Canada and there'll be funds like ours or other ecosystem partners that are ready to support. Uh, so looking forward to engaging with whoever you are uh, soon and go from there. I love it. Thank you very much again for all your time. Thanks, Jeff. Have a good day. You as well. Bye. Perfect. So I think some of the great things that um, Adita shared was, I think, 
probably the, the best ones that really kind of encompass uh, all of it is that when going in at a later stage in that Series A and above, when you're getting to that position of scaling, is that putting boards together and being part of those boards are great at helping maneuver through problems, manage through uh, concerns that may come up, utilizing all of the people on the board, utilizing all the people in his team, and of course, um, other investment groups to come up with the best ways to get that information readily available for uh, the founder and believe in the founder. The founder really is the driving force behind that business. And I think they really emphasize that as well. And then of course, um, understanding the, the numbers uh, and putting together the whole concept behind, uh, you know, what really is going to drive home that business and make it successful. And when you're investing in one company, you're investing in all of their providers. So ensuring that when you are investing in these in the main primary company, that if you start scaling that business, that the other partners are able to scale at the same time. That is crucial information that you need to look into as from an investor standpoint, but even as a founder, that when you start to scale your business, that you've got to have other businesses that are capable of scaling at the same time with you, especially when it gets into heavy product. Uh, but all great information and insights. Um, and um, the last one I'll say is the act of saying no, which I think was a tough one for everybody, but being able to get that information of why you're saying no back to the founder, I think is also just as crucial. They can learn a lot from that insight and that information. So fantastic um, feedback. And again, Adita, you know, thank you very much uh, for joining us. If you have enjoyed this conversation, please feel free to share with your friends, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and or please follow us on Spotify, Google, and or Apple. Feel free to share an audio or video clip around our show, and we may include it in one of our future podcasts. You can also find us on social platforms, including LinkedIn at Supporters Fund. Your support and comments are truly appreciated. Please visit us at supportersfund.com and or startup events at openpeoplenetwork.com. Thank you and have a fantastic day.